spiritual journey. I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. Like many Afghans, Imam Yaman Yazi's family left Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion. By the 90s, he was an 18-year-old aspiring rapper in Santa Barbara, California. A typical American teen who knew little about the religion, but made a dua to change the course of his life. One day, perhaps an answer to that dua, a mysterious visitor stopped by the family business. The visitor, a convert and former rapper, befriended him. He taught him how to pray, the basic tenets of the religion, and mentored him. Imam Yama gave up rapping, began practicing Islam, and eventually sought sacred knowledge. Through an Isna catalog, he learned about Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and started driving five hours weekly to take classes in the Bay Area. The classes introduced him to other scholars, including Sheikh Salik ibn Sidina, Sheikh Muhammad Yaqubi, and a whole new world. In this episode, Imam Yama narrates an emotional story of how Allah SWT guided him. He gives important and nuanced advice about dawah, the limits of interfaith work, and the challenges of being an American Imam. He now lives in Vancouver, BC, teaches youth classes at Seeker's Guidance, and runs the Blessed Tree, a nonprofit that focuses on spreading the beauty of Islam. So, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Alhamdulillahir Rabbil Alamin, Wassalatu Wassalam ala Rasulihil Kareem, ala Adihi Wassahmijmain. Let's do this. So, I grew up, uh, I was born in Afghanistan, Kabul, the main capital, and um, my family left there because of the Soviet invasion, and uh, we moved to India, where I lived in New Delhi, India. Um, I think I was around the age of seven to nine years old, two years there, where I learned Indian, and I learned uh, Urdu, I should say, and picked up on the culture, really loved it. And uh, a couple of years later, I had an uncle who was living in California. And um, we come from a family of merchants that sold um, handwoven traditional rugs from Afghanistan, Iran, areas of uh, Asia and different, different parts of the world. Wow. It's um, tribal rugs and arts and things like that. My great grandfathers were in the business. Actually, there was probably the most noted two brothers who were doing business in Afghanistan in the, I'm not sure what years they were, but they were very well known. So my family was always in that business. When we're in India, um, my uncle had, you know, like many people that either went to Europe, some came to America. I guess our route, the destiny of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ended up, we came to California. Um, I'm very grateful for that because subhanAllah, all the places we could have went um, had a tough time in India. Um, I had a little brother who actually passed away in India through an accident and kind of these, these things, when I look back in my life, kind of added an element of reflection for me later on in my life, as I'll probably tell you my story. But, you know, this, this becomes a factor later on in my life. 
Um, same time that my younger brother passed away, another brother was born um, a month apart from him. Um, and so I have, I have, we're a total of three siblings. And so I have a younger brother. And, you know, that was a sad thing that occurred, you know, the life of many people who leave their country seeking a better life for their family. Many suffer some type of tragedy, subhanAllah. It's a really tough test. And mm -hmm. um, we came to California, mashallah, and of all places, we ended up settling in Santa Barbara, which in the words of my dear friend, uh, beloved Sheikh Yahirotis, uh, he says it's the best city in North America. You can quote me on that for him. Um, a very beautiful place. And I, I found out the reasons why later, but it's a small town. And I think this is where Meghan Markel and Prince Harry, I think is his name, <laughs> settled in now in Santa Barbara. So it's a beautiful place. It's small. It's right off the ocean. The weather is really nice. And I, we ended up coming to Santa Barbara and my uncle had a store there and we settled there and that's where I grew up. Um, and you asked about family and my family, like many, I think could relate to this. They're Muslim by name. Of course, our country is Muslim, but you know, the idea of Islam in, in our life really never played a role. Like I grew up, I was never told, you know, to pray what religion is, what it's not. No one really... No one really practiced. I had a very large family too, but subhanAllah, it was a very, very, I don't know what the word is. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's liberal. I don't think it's secular. I don't, I think it's just being neglectful of religious responsibility. That stems from lacking knowledge. But anyway, whatever the cause may be. So I didn't really, religion for me never played a role except if someone died someone got married, that I heard some Quran being recited, always loved it, always had a deep sense of respect for it. But I just didn't know. And I was too busy in my own life to really care about it, in a sense, because when you grow up in a small town like Santa Barbara, off the coast, off the beach, we're well off. We had nice cars, nice homes. We're busy in just dunya, you know, no one ever stopped to say what's after dunya. No one at 15, 16 stops and thinks, what's, in, what's, what's the next world? So, and, and the fact actually Santa Barbara was probably one of the smallest Muslim communities you'll ever come across. Um, it took Santa Barbara 30 plus years just to have a first center now. Um, but it was always like rental places, small, three, four people might come for Isha prayer. Um, Juma prayers were like 50 to 80 people myself growing up when I first came in the community. So I grew up in Santa Barbara and I grew up uh, very liberal or whatever you want to call it with my family. And uh, up until the age of 18, where, yeah, I, I had a lot. I, I can really say that I had it all. I mean, I was really, I don't know if it was blessed because blessings are always a test. But by my standards back then, I was blessed to have it all. And I, sometime about 18 years old, I really started to think that I was missing something and I wasn't truly happy or content. And I was happy in my life, but there was deeper questions that always used to come in my mind here and there about existence, about the world. And I used to, I used to just lay on my bed and think about life and existence and I, you know, the crazy thing is I didn't know there was an afterlife. That's how terrible the education was. So for me, death was like non-existence. It was like what happens. And I used to go in deep meditation on that. Well, 
one could call it a nice terms meditation. <laughs> I would just be like, I'd lay in bed for two hours and just think about these things. And it got to a point where I remember a couple of times in my life, I hit this point in that reflection that it was a really dark space. It was a really dark area. It was a really depressing, sad, sad state of affairs to be. And I think I got to experience what it means not to have the light of faith, you know? And, and anyway, on my 18th birthday, believe it or not, every year I make my wishes and blow the candle. This year was different. This year I said, God, guide me to whatever you would love from me. Mm -hmm. When I look back, I get a little emotional because, you know, God heard my prayer. And that's, that's something that always, that means more than the world. And at that point, after I made this wish, I had no real idea really what it's going to be. I didn't ask for be guided. I didn't ask for religious guy. I, I wasn't looking for a particular thing. I just said, guide me to whatever you want me to do or be. Then, believe it or not, two months later, I met a guy who came by. We had a store running in the family business. I was supposed to run my own business at right, right around 18 years old, 17. I had a store which instead of running it, I would often just be cruising around different places and having fun. Um, this guy walks in my store because he knew a friend of mine who was a, who was a, who seen him on a bus station. And this is an African-American convert used to be a rapper in Los Angeles with Warner brothers. Um, this is the nineties. So like NWA, ice cube, all those guys, he, they all know him. He used to be famous. He was a rapper and his uh, DJ ended up being a famous DJ in the, in the world actually. So when I met him, that was my background. I had a lot of love for hip hop and, you know, freestyle dancing and all this other stuff. So when I came across, that was something I could relate with him. He saw my friend, I don't want to give you the long version, but he saw a friend, he walked in the store and my friend looked at him. He's like, Oh, my friend is Muslim. He's like, Oh, I'm looking for young Muslims. Who's your friend? He's like, well, his name is Yama. He's Afghani. Why don't you come tomorrow? I walk in the store because I wasn't there that day. My friend, he tells me, this is a non-Muslim friend who later, alhamdulillah, ends up converting. Um, but he said, hey, a Muslim guy came by. First thing that went in my head is Muslim guy. Uh oh, what does that mean? Unfortunately, I always associated a lot of times Muslim with restriction, you know, things mm -hmm. you cannot do. And unfortunately, that's just the culture. The cult, our culture, my culture in particular, often you know, translates uh, religion to be something restrictive rather than something that is enriching and expansive and something that broadens your perspectives and enlightens your soul, your mind, your heart. So that's the first thought that came to my head. And then, so I waited the next day and lo and behold, my teacher walks in and he walks in, he has an he has a jacket, a khakis jacket, and it's something written in Arabic, okay? This is crazy. He has something written in Arabic. Who walks around in the 90s with something written on the Arabic? He's wearing a kufi. He looks like DMX, totally like DMX, the rapper. And he walks up and he shakes my hand really hard, firm, and he says, Assalamu alaikum. And to be honest, I didn't even really know how to respond to that. I looked at him and I'm like, Assalamu alaikum, not wa alaikum as -salam, but he looks at me, he sits down and he starts asking me, what do you know about Islam? I said, well, I think you have to pray five times a day and you can't drink, eat pork and you shouldn't drink alcohol. So what do you know? That's what I asked him. 
<laughs> and like those three things, honestly, is what I knew. And I said, oh, yeah, we're supposed to pray five times a day. That I know. Um, well, not as a fault, but I thought that was the right thing or the good thing mm -hmm. to do. And that started the journey. I'm going to skip you the long version, but then... You can do it the long version. <laughs> so, okay, fine. I, I started talking to him, and this wonderful guy was God sent, I can tell you that, because he was only in Santa Barbara for four months. He came to, he had a job to clean recreational parks, and, you know, he was very happy in his life. He gave up Warner Brothers, and when I met him, he, his ethics, the way he taught me, his patience with me, he saw that I didn't know anything, but he didn't look down upon me. Uh, he He was... And he was the perfect guy I wanted. You know, I was into rapping and I was into all these things. So he asked me, what do I like? I told him, I said, do you do any of that? He said, I did a little bit of that. I said, let me hear something. He goes, I don't do it anymore. But if you go to the store, you can buy my album. For my first reaction is, oh, my God, you have an album? He goes, yeah. I'm like, with who? He's like, with Ice-T. I'm, I'm on the second track. I have a rhyme. I have a song there. I'm like, so you're a professional rapper. You, who do you know? He's like, oh, I know all those guys. I'm like, does Ice Cube know you? Do they? Oh, he's like, yeah, they all know me. And he told me how Ice Cube took a shahada. I said, how do you know? He's like, I was in the hotel room. <laughs> so for me, that was like, okay, so how come you left it? He's like, no, I don't like that scene. I don't like that environment. I left it. In fact, I think they still owe me money, but I don't want it. So all that really affected me a lot. Then I went to his house. He had a bunch of books on his bed. I'm like, where do you sleep? He's like, I sleep on the ground. I said, why don't you sleep on the bed? He's like, I'll sleep on the bed when I read all those books. I'm like, there's like 20 books here. You're never going to read them. He's like, well, that's the point. He would get up at 2.30 in the morning. He called me and said, let's go to the mosque and pray. So I would do that. And you know, for an 18-year-old, honestly, back then, you don't need all this philosophy. You don't need all this talk. You need worship. You need just straight out, go to the mosque in the middle of the night, pray, read the Quran, and spend time with somebody special really did it for me. I didn't need anything else. And that the thing is, though, when I started praying with him and he taught me how to pray, um, I remember the feeling of Maghrib. Maghrib felt so good that I remember I used to go out, you know, we went out, we went to places that we shouldn't have been, but I didn't know any better. And I remember I'm like, you know, the peace and tranquility I have praying Maghrib at home is better than any club I'd ever been to, was better than any dance I ever attended, was a, whole, was a wholesome feeling that I had longed for. But, but the thing is, I didn't know that's what I needed. And I remember in the beginning, I was still brand new and I wasn't still committed all the way. I was still learning. So one of the things I did one time, I remember, is I went to hang out with some friends that I used to hang out with and they're doing what they normally do. And I, that confirmed it for me that night that this is not a life I want anymore. I want to give it up. And then I started giving up all those things. I left dancing. I left rapping. I remember one friend I saw, two of my friends ended up um, dancing for professional artists like EPMD and all these rap groups. Some came up with albums. They did their own stuff. But I'm happy to say that many that I shared Islam with actually ended up converting. Um, many of them actually converted. A lot of rappers, a lot of um, DJs. Um, many of them, alhamdulillah, started talking to them about Islam. And subhanAllah, it's like that's everybody saw 
the peace, the tranquility, and the happiness Islam brought that nothing out there could replace. And that was the beauty of it. So alhamdulillah, I got into Islam. I gave up. I started learning. I, I still remember the moment he told me the afterlife is more real than this world. That's At that moment is when I said, okay, I have a choice. I can A, ignore this guy, right? Like a lot of people do who are young and they're told to be to start praying and doing other things by somebody older or somebody more knowledgeable. And they can do after two choices always a, they ignore it or B they really, they look at themselves and they're uh, now um, faced with a tough decision to either embrace it truly or, you know, play a deaf ear and move on with your life. So I couldn't do that. I really, I said, I have to commit, I have to do this right. So Alhamdulillah, by the blessing of Allah, I gave up all those things and I went to the masjid and met the people there. It was a very small community. Um, the cool thing is, the funny thing is, when I first started, I didn't know what to do. And many times, uh, later on I look, uh, unfortunately I've, I'm thrust to be in an imam position, but I've led prayers where there's like a couple thousand people. And I still, believe me, when I stand on the prayer rug, I'll never forget the days when um, I took a shower when I was just 18. I didn't know how to pray yet. But I remember I took a shower. I'm like, what? I used my brain to try to figure out what to do in a prayer. Believe it or not, I'd never seen anybody really pray or what to say in positions. I didn't know what a rakat was. I didn't know fatiha. So I, I remember standing and saying something like, you know, I love you, Allah, and then bowing and then kissing the ground on the prayer rug because I thought that's what the right thing would be. In my culture, you took the Quran, you kissed it. So I kissed the prayer rug and I look at those things now, I laugh a little, but I always use those moments to remind myself of where we were and how much Allah guided us. And had it not been for Allah's guidance, we would not have been guided. And at the same time to always remember that Allah didn't give people knowledge and guidance so they can become arrogant. Allah gave people knowledge and guidance in order to guide others, in order to be a source of light, in order to know God, know Allah. Because many people I met later, or some they told me, you know, and I look at myself when I was younger, I honestly think that was like, I'm two different people. I don't, I cannot imagine that mentality now. I cannot imagine how do you live in a world not having Allah? You know, Imam Ibn Atayla, one of our greatest scholars, Rahimullah, he says in a line of poetry that's just so beautiful, in a line of dua, he says, uh, Ilahi, oh my Lord, the one who found you, what did he lose? And the one who lost you, what did he find? And on goes my life and I started learning and then I came across who I consider the greatest sheikh of his time, the one that really um, gave me the energy I really needed to take it to the next level is I think if I didn't meet this guy, my life wouldn't have been the same. I don't know where I would have ended up. I don't know if I would still have been interested in the Dean as much. He just took it to the level I needed. And um, I have tremendous love and respect for him until now. Uh, you know, because when you look, the scholars, they say your parents are a cause of those who brought you into the world, but your teachers are the cause of you arriving to Allah. One of my teachers once told me, a person who teaches you letters that end you, ends up 
for you uh, or ends up that you go to paradise by it. We can never enumerate that blessing. We can't give that a value, right? The Prophet taught us, La ilaha illallah. Buy it. If you believe in it and die on it, you'll be in Jannah forever. What is the value of that? You can never put the, the world and everything in it cannot equal two rakats of the sunnah before fajr. The world and everything in it cannot equal the gift of loving Allah, the gift of knowing who Muhammad is, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So I think our teachers, uh, in our time, there's a real lack of respect for teachers and those who taught us. There's people that study with shiuch and then they turn really in a, in a foul manner against them and they forget the blessings that was imparted to them. Um, I look at the good of my teachers. I look at what they taught me, what I took from them. Um, I love them and respect them and magnify them and honor them. And I make dua for them every day. And I've had some really good teachers. Um, but this particular teacher was Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. May Allah bless him and preserve him. Uh, the late 90s, like mid 90s, I started listening to everything he had to a point that I I can tell you I memorized everything he probably said and taught in the 90s. People tell me of a talk he gave. I go, yeah, I remember. I can, I can tell you from memory everything he talked about. And he's the one that changed my life. You know, he really did. And, and anyway, when I discovered Sheikh Hamza, he was only a five-hour drive from me. So I said, you know what? Me and my wife at that point, I just got married in 98. And I told my wife, hey, there's this American guy. He's a convert. He's teaching. Let's go check it out. And you're, you know, we're young. Actually, I got young. I got married pretty young. I was 22. My wife was 18. Just got married and we're like, let's go. So we hop in my dad's van and we went to the Bay Area five hours. We left at 5 a.m. We got there at 10 in the morning. Sheikh Hamza taught a class at what was then called the old Islamic Hayward School. And uh, we attended two lectures, two hours each. And we got home by 8 p.m. in time for dinner. We're young. We have a lot of energy, mashallah. And uh, oh my God, it was just so phenomenal. It was so beautiful. And that started the beginning of my journey where then I would travel to the Bay Area to study with him on the weekends, probably for three to four years after that. Um, not every single weekend, but then when Zaytuna became established, the old Zaytuna Jackson um, from that old crew, you probably have had a lot of people on here from that time. Um, I saw the growth of it. I saw the building of it, the expansiveness of it. There was something really magical in those late 90s with Sheikh Hamza. The feeling in the air, the feeling of being with those scholars. Man, when I look at everything that's out there right now, they cannot equal a, uh, an afternoon with Sheikh Hamza. I can tell you that. There is no way in the world. Um, but then I thought it was the times. I'm like, well, that's just what the 90s were. And then I think in the 2012, 2013, um, another teacher of mine from the Bay Area, Sheikh Sadiq ibn Sidina, who taught at the old Zaytuna, started coming to Santa Barbara, and he started teaching classes. And then I, all of a sudden, I had the exact feelings that I had in the late 90s studying. And I said, man, it's not the times, it's the barakah of the teachers. If you find the right teacher who has the secret of, transmission, the secret of humbleness, the knowledge that really is amazing. You'll get those feelings of peace and tranquility and happiness. And it's hard to explain, but I think people that change their life is not just information they were learning. 
It was prophetic light. It was the message of the Prophet Muhammad It was, you know, the ulama are waratatul anbiya. They're the inheritors of the prophets and they pass more than just knowledge. They pass the hal, the, the spiritual anwar and lights and presence. And now that's all misused. You know, anybody who claims they're a Sufi, everyone's like, oh, mashallah, this sheikh, this, this and that. And, you know, it wasn't like that for us. It was just, Everything you're learning and experiencing, you're doing it with your heart before everything else. I remember I saw people crying in his classes. We saw people converting. We saw a lot of people leaving to go overseas to study. A guy by the name of Yahya Rodas, a guy by the name of Rami Ansur, a guy by, you know, all these names that are giants now, mashallah, leading Muslim communities in North America. But Sheikh Hamza was the spark, you know. It really was. MashaAllah, you know, we, in the late 90s, uh, Sheikh Hamza taught a Sira class that I was blessed to be in. It's the one you find on YouTube now. Um, you, when you hear the really loud laughter, that's my voice in the background, <laughs> often just enjoying the moments. Um, I think what, 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 what we saw, we knew was special. And furthermore, Sheikh Hamza started bringing teachers, and every one of these teachers was quite impressive. A guy by the name of Sheikh Muhammad Al-Yaqubi came, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya came. There was a great West African scholar named Sheikh Abdullah Oud Ahmedna. Um, he's Murabat al-Hajj's grandson who's still teaching in Mauritania. May Allah preserve them. And these people, when you sit with them, you're like, okay, these are not regular imams or some sheikhs. These are like very high caliber scholars. But I think the thing that always affected me and touched me was as knowledgeable as all these guys were, everyone was so humble. They never claimed to be a sheikh or an imam or anything else. They were like, we're not even worthy to be students of knowledge. And that really, really, really hit me in my heart. Really loved that um, about my teachers. And, you know, that this is what the religion is about anyway. It's about, you know, being humble and doing the work and not caring about titles, positions, public recognition, approval, etc. This is about more than just about us, you know. So um, it was special. It definitely was special. But I had another great blessing in that I was very, very close to a friend of mine and am still to Freydun Mujaddidi. And Sidi Freydun was interesting because he's the guy you don't hear much about, but he has a big secret. He's such a blessed person that I used to stay at his house when I used to come to the Bay Area. And Freydun would always give me the ins and outs of what is happening, right? So he would tell me the, the details. He'd tell me the background stories to like the sheikh stories, what's happening at Zaytuna, land they're looking to buy, the amazing miraculous contributions of donors, all these things. Like I always knew what was happening because of Freydun, right? And um, we saw that this is really from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know? we really saw that this is from Allah and everything just fell in place, you know, everything just fell in place. And mashallah was just, it was really magical. I mean, looking back at everything that occurred so fast, but I would say that Zaytuna now, mashallah as a college is one thing and I can't speak for it because I was, I'm not there and I don't attend classes there. Um, my feeling, to be quite honest, is that it cannot be and is not the same as the mid late 90s. I think the feeling and the atmosphere was different. Um, and mashallah, Zaytun is doing great work, no doubt. 
But what was on Jackson Street was something far beyond, for me personally at least, way more special than anything we ever seen because it was like, it was the place of light. It was a place you came. I remember some imams who visited California were either leading prayers or whatever. When I went with them to Old Zaytuna, I remember the first reaction they'd always have when they got there is, this is it? This is the place? I'm like, because it was small. It wasn't big. You know, it was like uh, maybe 800 square feet, 900 in the inside. Um, and then the courtyard was big. There was a tree. There was a field, etc. But they were always shocked. Like, okay, such a small place actually has this much effect worldwide. But is it not the same for the Masjid of the Prophet? If you actually go to Masjid of the Prophet in Medina, the original Masjid is very small in size. It's, you know, no bigger than Medina was. But look at the Barakah. And that's, I think, a key word I would use to label all of the late 90s and early 2000s or the era of when you're with the great scholars that you spend time with is the word Barakah. Um, my teacher would have a saying that uh, that baraka, uh, plentiful comes from baraka, but baraka doesn't come from plentiful, right? That um, it's not just having a lot of quantity of anything that gives you baraka. If we look at the life of the prophet, the life of the prophet, Sallam, I just taught this class at Seekers for the youth, looking at the battle of Hunayn as opposed to the battle of Badr. The numbers were high. People took comfort in that. And Allah even mentioned that in the Quran when your numbers impressed you. But it is that when Allah gives barakah to something, none could withhold it. And I've seen the barakah, the, but we had the barakah. We, in one hour, you were able to get, and even in the short time that we were able to spend there, affected our life so much and altered and transformed our lives so much I look now at YouTube, I look at online classes, although I teach at an online seminary, you know, it's not the same. And that's just facts. You can never take away from what Allah puts the great barakah in. Is that to say online has no barakah? No, it can actually. I've, I've I studied with teachers online directly. I felt great barakah even from that. So I don't think we could ever limit barakah. We can never, Allah wants to give barakah in something he gives barakah in it. He can give you barakah in one hour. You didn't have your entire life, you know, in all honesty. He can give you barakah from one teacher's dua that you didn't get your entire existence. So that's what we rejoice in, that we have a Lord like that. We rejoice in that we have a religion like that. Um, moments of your life that end up changing your state from one of uh, being in a wretched state, a shaqi, and then being in a state of sa'ad and felicitous, happens in moments they happen in great moments when you're with uh you're when you're with someone or you're in a gathering that changes things and those are things you don't see but they're things that are happening in the background that if you were able to see uh, you would rejoice greatly in it and so um that's what we're missing in our time of course with the current coronavirus pandemic etc we we should realize that these are blessings may allah not deprive us of it that we should all re-look at again and realize all these hadiths, all these verses of the Qur'an, so much is mentioned on the importance of companionship, on the importance of suhbah. And when we want to go to Allah through a different route other than what He laid out for us, we're taking the long route. And sometimes the long route 
has detours that <laughs> takes a longer time, way longer time to get somewhere. Sorry, um, just to yeah. backtrack a little bit. How did you um, find out about Hamza and the Bay Area community? And, and like, what made you want to take classes? I don't know what the first cause was. I don't know how I came. You know what it was? I think it was. So I don't know how many listeners that are listening could relate to this. But in the 90s, they were, I think, Isna and some other, they used to send these catalogs, you know, like where I think you had cassettes, right? People don't know what that is. You can Google it (laughs) and you can order stuff. So I think I came across his name. Remember, and people listening, there's no YouTube. Um, Actually, the computer wasn't even really around either. You really couldn't use it. Um, So it was like, how do you get to watch somebody? You either A, had to go find them and attend their lecture or B, you get a cassette recording, or maybe something they wrote. So I think I somehow came across a video or a cassette, and as soon as I heard him, I was like, wow, this guy's good. And, and then it just kind of came from there. So I don't know exactly what the first point of it was, how I came across him. But, and, and then in the 90s, I don't think there were a lot of people. I think you can count on your hands less than five to 10 people nationally who are known to be good speakers, who are known to be... Um, people of influence. Imam Zaid Shaket came around early 2000s. He wasn't even in the 90s. So it was like Sheikh Hamza, Dr. Jamal Badawi, Muzammar Siddiqui, and some of these really amazing people that did do great work for the service of the deen at that time. But none of them appealed to me quite like Sheikh Hamza. Sheikh Hamza was different. Uh, there was something about him. So that kind of sparked it. And I, I, I also don't know how I came across that he was teaching in the Bay Area. I think a friend of mine told me something about it. And subhanAllah, those details I can't recall, but it just happened, you know. It just happened. Can you talk about some of the teachers that had the biggest impact on you and, and what you learned from them? Sure. I mean, I think for, for me, Sheikh Hamza, like one of the things that happened when we started being with him is he'd invite us to his house. And when we went to his house, you know, I'd ask him questions like, Sheikh, what time do you wake up? How much do you read? You know, like <laughs> just to be inspired and to believe, believe it or not, like I'll share this. Like he's like, I read five hours a day and I know he gets up, you know, an hour and a half or whatever before Fajr. Uh, mashallah, may Allah preserve him and maybe he still does that. Um, but he, you know, it was what I expected though. You know, it was what I expected from a teacher. It was what I expected from someone like him. May Allah forgive us and many who look and who may look at any of us, hopefully they don't at me, inshallah, but who look at other scholars that they expect a certain amount of um, righteousness from them. That that's what just comes with knowledge. May Allah forgive us. I think just deteriorates over time. But I think, you know, just seeing them, spending time with them, seeing their habits. If it was Ramadan, we went to Sheikh Hamza's house. It was 45 minutes before iftar. He would make us sit and read the Quran with him until if thought to take benefit and to not waste time. Um, I think with Sheikh Hamza, the thing I learned the most is how vigilant he is about his time, like how um, obsessed almost he is with his time, like just using it in a wise way. So, I, I mean, unlike many people that are sheikhs and imams out there teaching, I don't have that background that they have. And I'm not sad about it either. I think, you know, I always make dua, Allah, give me whatever is khair. Um, I don't consider myself um, a scholar or an imam or a sheikh. And I swear that by Allah, 
Um, and I'm, and I'm happy with it. I'm, I'm okay with that. I didn't have the religious training that many other people did who went overseas. I went overseas for a short time, studied Arabic. I went to Damascus. I went to, um, mainly Damascus where I studied, but I mainly studied with another teacher of mine who was the former imam of our community, um, Mufti Abdurrahman bin Yusuf. He's quite big in England now. And the thing I learned from him in many years I was with him is his level of piety and scrupulousness that you don't see in other people, the amount of taqwa that he had, his consistency, his vigilance, what he was able to achieve. He wrote a lot of books in the 90s that were important works. You know, he'd have me just look at some stuff. Um, I was good at picking trans transliteration mistakes or reading through the content and I got to study with him, you know, Aqid and Fiqh and, you know, attended every night and we'd be together for a few years. And yes, he absolutely changed my life too. You know, I got the training I really needed to kind of see how things were, it gave me a good perspective. Another person that ended up um, having a big influence on me was Sheikh Salik bin Siddina, who's a West African scholar, um, who's very unique in the sense that he studied with Murabd al-Hajj for 17 plus years, memorized everything he teaches. And um, I think him coming to Santa Barbara, and Santa Barbara has another story of how I kind of stepped in the imam role there after Mufti Abdurrahman left. And I kind of took over just for a year until they find an imam. And then one thing led to another and another and um, ended up doing a lot of interfaith events and teaching kids. And that became a great experience. So I was like, um, I, I, that was another whole story maybe later, but, um, yeah, so I think Sheikh Salik, Sheikh Abdurrahman, Sheikh Hamza, these are the main teachers that have a lot of influence. And I think somewhere in the spiritual realm, Murabd al-Hajj had the most effect on me in terms of, um, he's the one that influenced my teachers. You know, one of my teachers, he said, all the barakah you really got was actually from Murabd al-Hajj. Because Sheikh Hamza once said, all that I've been blessed with is from the barakah of Murabd al-Hajj. And my teacher, Sheikh Sadiq, he said, everything you you benefited from me is from the barakah of Murabd. And then the barakah of Murabd goes back, essentially, to, uh, goes back all the way to the Prophet Sallallahu who we are the source. All of the barakah all of us have in our, in our life is from the barakah of the Prophet Sallallahu And this is our happiness. This is our rejoicing in him, Sallallahu And, you know, um, this is, this is what we should be happy. This is what Mawlid is in essence. You know, it's rejoicing in our heart for the existence and the gift of the chosen one that he's affected all of us in our hearts. I have a beautiful Syrian sheikh that I study uh, with online. And he always, I, I learned from, I'm supposed to be studying Arabic language with him. He speaks just in Arabic. But I think really what I learned from him is akhlaq and adab and tasawwuf. Um, because his love for the Prophet and you know, for me, that's that's the main thing. Is for me, it's not about all the outward knowledge. It's about it's about love. It's about ascending in our character and our love and our happiness with Allah and His Messenger in this religion. And um, yes, it's important, of course. No Sufi. We have what we call goofy Sufis and real Sufis. The goofy Sufis are the ones that get a high, and they're all about dhikr gatherings and maulids and all this other stuff which is good in some ways because rejoicing in the prophet is always good but it's not good where they're leaving off obligatory knowledge that they should learn aqidah they should learn fiqh that they should learn akhlaq and character that they should embody uh leaving off the duties towards their parents you know all these things which are core 
that any of those Sufi sheikhs, they're reading their books, were they to come in their life, they would condemn them and say, first do all this, then come to this affair of ours, right? So there's the real Sufis and the essence of this religion. And then there's the goofy Sufis that, you know, are, are, are doing a disservice to the real Sufis. And I think we have to always remember that and dis- di- differentiate on that. Um, I don't know how I went into that. But yeah, going back to scholars that had that influence. And I think, you know, I've had another thing I've been very blessed with in Santa Barbara is uh, Imam Zaid calls it Santa Baraka is um, we really had a good amount of people I came across, very good people, very good brothers and sisters, and they shaped my life. They had great influence on me. And um, I thank Allah for everyone that I got to meet and learn what I could from the best of them and, and take those. So they had an effect on me. But alhamdulillah, everyone has to know their role, you know. Not everybody's Abu Bakr, not everybody's Omar. Some are Salman al-Farsi, some are Suhaib al-Rumi, some are Sayyidina uh, Nusayba, some are, you know, uh, different. Um, some are Sayyidina Sumaya, Sayyidatuna Sumaya, and others. Each of us, Allah chose for us to have a specific role towards our, our own lives and our family and our community as a, as a whole. And the wisdom is knowing your role, knowing who you are, and then playing your role accurately. My teacher used to say, that in West Africa, they say, may Allah have mercy upon the one who knows his rank and his position, right? So when you know your role, like people in communities know if they have money, they help masajid and organizations. And that's what they do, and they do it well. Well, God bless them because, mashallah, they're like the Sayyidina Abdurrahman bin Awf or Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affans that spent fi sabirillah. Then there are people like Sayyidina Abu Darda and Abu Dhar al-Ghifari and others that were the ascetics. Their doors that Allah opened up is dhikr and, and um, fasting and praying in the night. That's what they find beloved and that's what their heart inclines and that's what they find facilitated for them. So they go through that door and they're not trying to be the sheikh. They're not trying to make all that money because Allah didn't decree, decree that for them. Uh, there are some, mashallah, that have podcasts that uh, seem to benefit the Muslim communities by, <laughs> inshallah, and that's the doors Allah opened up. So whatever door Allah opens up, the benefit is, I think, is you learn that wisdom, ask Allah to bless you to see that wisdom, and then you play your role. So that's what I try to do. My passion was in teaching youth in my community. Um, because I think with youth, one of the things you learn is they teach you, actually. Youth are teaching you. And... Yes, you can teach them, you can benefit them, but they're really, they remind you of who you used to be, the purity and essence of youth and the potential of who they can become. And there's nothing like when you get a letter or you get a note from somebody you taught that said, you know, teacher, because of you, I learned this, this and that. I got the benefit. May Allah bless you and reward you. That's what you want to see. You know, you want to see people be better than you and you want to see them excel and knowing that that will benefit you after you leave this world. So I, I, my passion now and my, my, my role that I try to limit myself is teaching youth. So that's why I'm Seekers now is um, trying to teach the youth role communities and trying to inspire them. But as I get older, this is a short window until I can still relate to the youth somewhat as I'm losing that grip because these new youth are really complicated <laughs> and uh, they like things that I just can't understand why. So that means maybe it's a new chapter upon me to come soon. <laughs> um, how did you, how did you meet Sheikh Faz and, and begin teaching with seekers? Um, 
And, and did you always want to teach youth or like, um, how did you choose to teach that class specifically? I think, um, well, Sheikh, Sheikh Faraz, did you ask about? Um, yeah, just like how you met Yeah, him. so I've known Sheikh Faraz for a long time, knew of him even longer, um, because my teacher, um, Sheikh Abdurrahman, used to answer on a group he had, or the Yahoo group back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I think it was like seven or 9,000 people on there. So at that time, that was impressive, you know. And he started that group, and my teacher would answer questions. Sometimes I see him a little puzzled. I go, Sheikh, what's on your mind? He's like, well, I got this question I'm thinking about. Um, that time it was like Faraz sent me, and he's always got me working. I go, what is this group? And he told me about it. And I heard the name. Then I saw, you know, all those years that Seekers started developing. And, and I, actually, for me, it was like when I used to research questions, I look at what Seekers wrote up because it was, mashallah, just a reliable source for traditional knowledge as I'm a, a proponent of traditional knowledge, the form of Ahib, and you see those answers, you see the references, and it always was written in nice English. It made sense. It was something really, when you read it, it's like hit you in your heart that this totally sounds like the right answer. Um, I think for me, I always had that respect. Never, ever, I can tell you, in my wildest thoughts that I ever think that I would be teaching as seekers at any level at all. Um, but qadar Allah, you know, may Allah may forgive us and may never make us think that we're worthy of anything. I mean, but um, my passion for youth, I think, started when I took on the role of imam in Santa Barbara, started teaching kids and the feelings and what I learned from them and I learned through them um, and, and really just made me realize, I think it's something Allah put in my heart that, you know, they have great potential. And mashallah, alhamdulillah, I, I think I was good at it. And I liked the responses I got. And uh, Allah opened up the doors and I started going to some Mina camps. And after the du'as, um, started teaching wonderful camp. The Mina camps are amazing. And I started going to one, two, and multiple ones. And the organizers really liked um, the style, how we held those things and the talks and inspired me more. Um, and then... I was talking to Sheikh Faraz at a point that um, I came to a certain point where I felt that the role of Imam for me and my community and differences of what I saw in their leadership uh, didn't match what my goals were. Um, decided to kind of leave that and um, run a nonprofit that I started in Santa Barbara called the Blessed Tree Foundation. And it was initially, uh, so there's two passions I developed. One was teaching youth and two, was um, teaching Islam or propagating Islam or spreading this message to the non-Muslim community. As Imam, I started doing a lot of interfaith work um, in our community. We, I went to churches, synagogues, uh, colleges, a lot of high schools. Um, it got busier and busier to a point like every week I'd have a function. And in a small town, alhamdulillah, that was good. I started going to surrounding towns. And everywhere I went, hey, I could relate, right? I used to be a rapper, used to be in high school, used to do all these crazy things. And then I share my passion about Islam and, and I could relate to the people and can answer their questions. And I think the years with Sheikh Hamza really equipped me to do all those things very well. Um, and alhamdulillah, uh, we, we, I think we did a fair job. Uh, my wife was very involved in it as well with me. Um, and I remember in Santa Barbara, we held, held a rally with the non-Muslim community, the interfaith community. We came together when there were, you know, terrorist events or some cause and 
Um, we've had, held some of the biggest rallies there and we got Congress people to come, local uh, leaders would come. Um, and some of our stuff got national news, alhamdulillah. We're on TV multiple times and the message was always clear. Um, Islam is a beautiful religion. It has every right to be here. We have a lot to offer. And if you're going to hate us, I used to say this a lot. If you're going to hate us, hate us for the right reasons, but not for the lies that you perpetrate against us. Right. And, um, and so I did that. And, and then we started the nonprofit and, um, we did a lot of it. I was really involved in a lot of it. And then when Seekers, I talked to Sheikh Faraz and he's like, why don't you do the youth initiative with us? Uh, come and join. And um, initially there was some talk and then later um, the offer came and I said, you know, this sounds like a great opportunity. Let me do this. And um, that's how it kind of went to Seekers. And inshallah, I'm, I'm happy right now, alhamdulillah, to be benefiting people and to teach. I think I have five or six classes I've done a class on Aqidah, a class on Fiqh, a class on Akhlaq and Character. I had a class called The Beauty of Islam. And much of this was developed just through my years of being with younger people, listening to them. I think the biggest thing for anybody listening is, if you want to try to teach the youth, the best thing is listen to them. Let them tell you their stories. Let them tell you all that they're into, and you'll learn a lot. And they also will learn a lot from their own selves. Um, you know, many times kids didn't do their homework. I assigned them. So I, I changed the subject. How was your weekend? What did you guys do? Right? I go around the room and, and kids would be like, yeah, I did this. Oh, was that really good? Did you play that game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They tell you more and they're really into it. And then at the end, you're like, so that's why you didn't do your homework. And then they would be like, oops, okay, I see where you was taking it. But you know, it was like, the thing I try to tell youth is you got to love what you're doing. And when you find the passion and the love for what you do, that's when you really excel and that's when you're really sincere. A lot of times youth now, if, even if they're practicing, they're not loving it. And when they're not loving it, there's something wrong. Because when I was young and I met Sheikh Hamza and we started learning, we were loving it. We were absolutely loving it. It wasn't like now youth are told by parents, you have to take this class. Why? Because you have to. It's fun, you know? And they're doing it, but they're not loving it. And they're not even liking it. They're like forced to it. And there's other problems of how that occurred, which I'm not going to go into because that'll open up a whole lot of doors. But I think the message is try to get kids to love what they're doing because that's the most important thing. I'm so glad that you joined Seekers and we can benefit from, from your classes. Alhamdulillah. And so that's a really good segue. Can you talk about your nonprofit, The Blessed Tree? What was really the vision for it? And like, what really drove you to, to start it? I think what drove me to it, uh, to be honest, is I saw the role of imams. And there was an article written on this by somebody a while back. It was a really good, accurate article. The lives of imams people don't talk about. And it's a tough role because you're constantly dealing with a lot of stress and pressure from masjid boards and a lot of times they tend to control a lot of people a lot of imams and their content what they can say what they cannot say i grew up with like a hip-hop background right it's a lot of like you know you don't take stuff from nobody kind of thing and i think initially i didn't want to be restricted in anything and i also wanted to see if i can start an endowment where um we can start an endowment where it would fund the work that we did, but not through a yearly give to this cause and give to that cause. You know, it was like 
somebody believes in it, there's an endowment, the endowment pays for all the work. And we didn't do an annual um, continued fundraiser because they can become really annoying. Um, initially, that was the idea is what if I came up with an endowment, funds my work, and I serve the community with no charge or anything on that endowment. I do all my work that I do, and, um, but it would free me to really do what I want to do with passion, with the freedom, and without the stress of communities. Um, communities, and I'm not saying this about Santa Barbara, they're a wonderful, great community. They were very good to me. Allah bless them all. But in many surrounding communities and many imams I talk to, no imam is really happy. They're all stressed out. They do a lot of things they don't like doing. Um, we don't have the balance yet. Maybe one day we'll find some balance, but it shouldn't be like that. You know, I think the years that I served as imam and then when I got done, it really altered like my whole attitude. When I go on a vacation of two weeks, I come back, people say to me, you look really good. You look really happy. And then I started saying to myself, hey, this is not right. This is not good for my health. It's not good for my family. And I think the thing you have to accept as an imam is no matter how much you're ever going to do, there are always going to be a complaint against you, right? Even if you do something perfect in one area, there's always going to be somebody who picks on you in other areas, which is fine. And you're taught that by teachers. You're taught, you know, they don't care about the criticism of those that criticize them. They do it for Allah. Yes, no doubt. That's, there's a spiritual angle to that. But we're also human being and we're not at the level of the companions. We're not at the spiritual level we should be at. Um, and it affects you. It affects your mentality. It affects your stress. It affects you. Um, how many times did me and my wife make a dinner? I'd go to Isha prayer and only to come back two hours later being some argument about some ridiculous thing or another because that's what people often engage in. And all those years just kind of stressed me out to a point that I said, you know, I was offered a couple imam jobs later and I said, no, thank you. God bless the real imams. Allah bless them. I would serve as imam of any community for free, but I would not take money from it because the restrictions, the pressure, the expectancy, the degrading actually as well. The fact that the people are treated as employees and uh, some imams are told to do janitorial type of work, which is good for the nafs, but it's not good. Like, uh, you know, which rabbi is told to do that in a synagogue, which priest is asked to do that in the churches. When I started going to all the non-Muslim communities and looked at how they function and how we function, we still have a lot of work to do. And it's just not right. It's not fair. But what I did discover is, no, this is not the trend throughout the country. I think a lot of African-American communities, um, God bless them, they have a really nice model. The office of imamship is like, you know, five, six people, someone that deals with mental health, someone that deals with, you know, marital advice and the consultation or um, uh, what is it called? Therapy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is someone that leads the prayer, someone that, that does the Juma khutbas or the lessons, someone that teaches Quran. All these roles are put often in, on one person. Mm -hmm. And, and that was kind of what I had to do. Of course, I was on the phone quite a bit with a lot of my teachers. And I said, if I, if I was asked anything I didn't know, I never answered something I didn't know. That frustrated people too, because I would say, I don't know, let me go ask. And I'd answer them a day or two later or whatever. And, um, and people don't understand that merit in our religion to say, I don't know. Um, but we have to say, you don't know, because speaking about the religion without knowledge is one of the great offenses that people don't think about. So that all is a factor to that uh, decision. And um, 
And, and a greater vision, I think I, I really had something in my mind and still do, inshallah. This is something I haven't given up on. Um, but so much has kept changing. One of the things I learned from my teacher, Sheikh Abdurrahman, is he was the kind of guy that always looked at not what everyone else was doing, but what is really core needed. What is really needed that we're not looking into? What is really something people can benefit that we're just not doing? That's how he was. He would look at what book do people really need, you know? And I have some ideas. I don't want to make it public yet, but I have a new passion. And subhanAllah, I had an idea recently to do something. Someone sent me an email suggesting that very same thing. They're very happy with one of their kids who was taking a class and suggested this very same thing that I was thinking about. So I don't want to give it up, but inshallah, that's what I have a, I have a new vision for. Inshallah. Look forward to hearing a bit more about that. Inshallah. What's kind of the most important thing about giving dawah that you've learned over the years? I think one of the greatest advices I ever heard was from the great scholar Habib Omar who we only discovered through Sheikh Hamza, for example. And when I went to visit Dara Mustafa in Yemen, Sheikh Hamza told me, Yama, when you go down there, just tell him, you know, he just kind of on the side said, tell him you're with me kind of thing, you know. He was always humble. He didn't really ever say you're my student, you know. Um, just tell him you're with me. I said, okay, Sheikh. So I did that and I got like, you know, all-star treatment. I got private dinner with Habib Omar. Habib Ali gave us extra time. We were given Sheikh Abdul Karim Yahya to be our guide and hang out with us. So all this good came from that. But I think the advice of Habib Omar was whenever you give da'wah to anybody, never see the one you give da'wah to that you're better than them. And I think that's what I try to do is I, I never look down upon anybody. I, I mean, I try not to. Of course, when they, let's get something clear. I have the honor and the that to know our religion is truth, period. And I wasn't hesitate to state that. Um, however, when I looked at individuals, I always try to see their passion, their sincerity to what they do, their professionalism, their character. And, and, and often a lot of it I saw that it's from our religion, but it's lacking within me a lot of times. So I had to learn. I learned a lot from them. Like, let me give you an example. Um, one of the frustrations I had with my community and many communities is something national tragedy would happen. And all the non-Muslims would send, local leaders would send, you know, emails and support. What can we do? If we had a rally, I'm telling you, within a day's notice, everyone showed up. I can tell you, Sister Hibba, that many times, all the rabbis, all the priests, all the local leaders, we sent them a one-day notice and they all came. Sometimes even the local congressmen, etc. But when I gave a khutbah in Juma, saying to people, for God's sake, these are non-Muslims standing up, giving you love, supporting you. There's nothing wrong with you coming to a public rally, not in a church or anywhere else that maybe, you know, there's issues there, but in a public area. How can you not come and just say thank you for your support? You might say, you might share something about your religion, dawah to somebody. No, why would get 10%, 5% show up? And that was really like, very frustrating. I never understood the logic behind that. I can never understand how they would take their time out of their precious schedules. They have a lot of things. These people are very busy. The local leaders are doing a lot of work to give up their time to come and to volunteer and speak and support. But yet we couldn't get 20% to show up. That really hurt me and it upset me a lot, but it also showed the current state of Muslims, right? Like one of the reasons we are in America, we have to realize primary reason should be dawah. 
as an Islamic law, there are ulama that discuss this, like what is the reason why you live in non-Muslim lands that you jeopardize the future of your children and their deen, etc., by the influences around you. No one even holds this conversation anymore because that would sound absurd. Yet people are losing their families and their children and their relatives to other faiths or just atheism in general. No one talks about those things. So one of the primary things we should be doing is dawah, right? And we do dawah by at least showing non-Muslims that we care about our neighbors. You know, the Prophet he said that Jibreel advised them concerning neighbors until he thought that they would inherit from us, right? The rights of neighbors and who are neighbors. Ulama are not uh, in unanimous on who the exact neighbors. Yes, it's the ones next to you, but Ibn Hazm, for example, and others say it's 40 neighbors, you know, 40 all around. It's your community, it's your neighborhood, it's the, it's the people around you, it's your city. I remember one lady came to me, gun and violence uh, coalition, anti-gun and violence coalition, I remember one email she wrote me. She's like, Yama, you're going to come whether you like it or not to my function <laughs> because you're the face of Islam in this city whether you like it or not. So it's like she was really kind and very nice. She's a very old, older lady. But I, I just liked how comfortable they felt with me to just, you know, reach out, not very, you know, they felt comfortable with me after a time. I think I, I remember in some gatherings I had seminars where I remember some non-Muslims would say, you know, before, when I used to come, I used to think of Islam very foreign, but I can kind of consider myself, you know, half Muslim, half Christian now. And just to hear those kind of things from people where it was something they'd rejected as far out, barbarian, crazy, backward religion to actually being very relevant. And people asking me questions like, these are the feelings I have, or this is what I'm going through in my life. What do you recommend from an Islamic perspective that I can practice or do, you know? And so that was nice. You know, all those things led me, gave me the energy I needed. So when, the non, when our beloved community, God bless them all to Jannah al-Firdaus, and I love them all. But when I felt down from them, this is where I picked up my energy from. And, um, you know, and I remember, um, I remember one of the local reverends, she's a very nice lady, incredibly nice. And I remember she said something that I'll never forget. Part of the reason I had some differences with my community is just the, the position they were taking and the role that they were going towards, I didn't really accept. And there was some talk about my role with them and my great dis disagreement with the board at that time. But I remember somebody asked, oh, Yama, you're not the imam of the community anymore. I said, no, I resigned and I stepped down. And they said, oh, then, you know, who, who, which, what are, where are you the imam of now, you know? And I remember the reverend there, she was there, and there was a group of colleagues that, you know, we've done a lot of work. And she just looked at her and she's like, he's our imam now. You know, just like, this is our imam in our community, and we're always going to look up to him. And that was really this, uh, a wonderful support that they always gave. And sometimes they'll still email me and say, I'm teaching this text. Is this something acceptable? Um, now they're open to that, where they want to share Islamic teachings. And alhamdulillah, it's a blessing to have uh, impacted uh, positively in our community within our faith. And I'm mostly in Canada now. My wife is Canadian in Vancouver. A lot of wonderful people are doing a lot of that work here. So I'm kind of really bogged down to do seekers work right now. It's very um, time consuming. I'm not able to do a lot of work and plus COVID, but it's something I always enjoy because again, um, 
if you've ever done it, you know the feeling you get when people ask you something about Islam and you share a verse of the Quran, you share hadith, you share the beautiful things. I remember another comment once where this lady stood up and we had a panel of all these religions. Everybody was there and she said, I want to make a comment. You know, what, what this guy said, she called me the Imam, she said, what the Imam said, I've never heard anything that profound. <laughs> I look around and I'm like, this is in a church. I got my good friends there, the rabbi, the reverend, you know. She's like, I never knew Islam is this incredible. <laughs> like, yeah. I remember I was like, yes, sir, this is what we do. This is, this is the work that we're looking for, you know, and Alhamdulillah, I was just, it was one of those things that really brought me happiness. And may Allah accept, may Allah forgive me. Um, astaghfirullah to praise anything. I'm praising in way of thanking Allah for all the great blessings. I ask Allah for forgiveness for everything we fail at and we fall short. But I thank Allah. Those were really wonderful learning experiences. Alhamdulillah. I think it's a common problem. Like, what do you suggest for getting Muslims more involved in, in da'wah work? I mean... I think for a lot of people, there's kind of this disconnect. They don't feel like they know enough about their own religion or they don't feel like they have anything that they can share, like in that way that you're talking about. So how would, how would you kind of suggest bridging that gap? Of course, they're seeking knowledge, but I guess more of like an immediate. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. I think, I think there's a few things. Number one, in Santa Barbara, I had a very good friend who was a convert, um, a Mexican brother. I love him to death. And I used to take him to a lot of my interfaith events. And the reason why is he knew the limits of what to do and what not to do. And I, I want to say this is very important what I'm about to say. It's very important what I'm about to say. Most Muslims who are involved in interfaith is jeopardizing their religion in a very serious manner. And let me explain what I mean by that. Let me explain. A lot of functions of interfaith, when I say interfaith and the events that I did, it's sharing Islamic views on a matter and giving a lecture. It's not uh, worship together as a community. It is not partaking in a ceremony or ritual or worship together because we're all in it together. This is very dangerous. We cannot, as Muslims, share in any worship. And a lot of times, Muslims can't see the differentiation between that line. So number one, they're not grounded in their own religion, so they don't know the limits, right? They go into these things and someone wants to say a prayer and then they get involved in that prayer. Someone is celebrating their religious particular holiday. There's nuances within their faith that is kufr things for us. So you have to be very careful. And as a result, uh, the problem is people start doing things that is like basically sharing in that kufr. And that becomes a serious jeopardized move there. So I don't recommend any Muslim to do something they're not comfortable with. Dawah is not necessarily interfaith. And yes, when a person says, I'm not comfortable to speak about my religion, yes, that is very true. If you're not comfortable, you should not do it. What you are comfortable with, you should be proud to say, for example, I believe Islam is the truth because I believe in one God and I don't believe in multiple gods and I don't believe in idol worship. I don't believe in Judaism as being the final and true religion. I believe it had roots that were true. Same with Christianity. I'm a Muslim. I'm proud and I'm happy. Every Muslim, alhamdulillah, can share that. But now 
someone asks you, why does the Quran say this? And now you're speculating, or now you offer an opinion where you say, well, I don't believe in that personally, right? I mean, <laughs> you, just, you just rejected a text of the Quran. No, this happens a lot. Yeah. This happens a lot. And it's not like, and, and I think this is, okay, so in my last khutbah before I resigned, this is one of the things I actually advised my community. I said, please don't do interfaith, don't get involved when you know, don't know the limits. I think imams and communities should train their communities on what the limits are and then be very clear to the non-Muslims that they will absolutely respect your boundaries when you explain it to them. But if you don't explain it to them, they, they take things to be offensive. Like, why aren't you saying this? How come, you know, I was at a gathering where everybody stood up. I didn't stand up. I said, no, you guys are partaking in something. I'm sorry, I'm not here for that. I'm here to explain what Islam says. You know, and, and so you anticipate, you know from your experience, right? Yes. So, so you have to be careful. And I would say that uh, if you're not comfortable, learn. Uh, and, and I think this is the biggest thing that I would advise. If I had one advice, I would say all Muslims, uh, please take an hour or half hour, 10 minutes every single day by educating yourself on the religion uh, through, you know, reliable sources that would impact your life, right? Through reliable sheikhs. And, and you got to learn your deen, right? You have to learn aqidah, you have to learn fiqh, you have to learn these things because otherwise your religious practice is not sound, it's not fruitful, it's not meaningful. I mean, we're reading Fatiha, uh, you know, uh, 20 rakats every single day, 17 rakats minimum, and every day we're saying, sirat al-mustaqim. And all our life we're like, what is the sirat al-mustaqim? I don't know. You know, there's a level of like, I remember in my community, the Jewish community there had uh, Torah study three or four times a week. And they would make time on a Tuesday afternoon. They take time out and they go study. And I don't know any Muslim community that has Quran studies, Quranic tafsir. One, uh, you know, yes, there are. Yes, there are. But it's not like in depth. You know, it's a, it's a lecture you can bring your coffee to at the masjid. You can lay back, lean against the wall, have a pillow, whatever. You just enjoy but then there's a real an analytical look at the verses. Why does Allah say something? And to engage the actual people and get their view of like, do you understand this? What's your thought about that? There's, we don't do that, you know, and because it's, we don't have that interest, you know. Uh, so every community should have a class on basics of ulum al-Quran, the restrictions on what you can say, what you cannot speak about. You know, the Quran is not the only source of law, for example, in Sharia. We have the Sunnah, we have Qiyas, we have Ijma'ah, we have all these principles that we derive law from. We have the four schools. Within the four schools, we have multiple opinions, some that are acceptable, some that are not, some that are permissible to follow, some that are not. There's so much. It's not simple. It is not simple at all to just stand up and, and speak about something, you know? So... And all of that is essential knowledge. So, yes, uh, I think for seekers, one of the exciting projects coming up is a, a curriculum for new converts. And I remember, like, the way I would deal with new converts, I'd take them to a coffee shop, you know, enjoy a nice cup of coffee with them, and then give them the rundown of what to expect in the community, right? Because I saw in our community people that would become Muslim, come to our community, spend time with people. God bless them. But boy, Muslims could really turn other people off. You know, someone just converted and they're telling the sister, don't wear this, don't do that. When are you going to wear hijab? Don't wear makeup. Can't that? Do you have a boyfriend? That's haram. You know, it's like, okay, the guy, the lady, the sister might be like, dude, I just converted. This all seems so much. I'm going to go leave the religion. 
I try to tell them like, look, you're going to have struggles. Take your time. This is a journey between you and God. No one else. You and God. Then I tell him the story of Cat Stevens, how he said, Yusuf Islam, I'm glad I discovered Islam before I discovered Muslims. You know, it's the good Muslims you'll find if they, they're good, they're human beings. They're going to be good and bad. So, you know, I kind of prep them to come in the community and to have a positive experience. And positive experience in community is very important. And a lot of communities, we lack that. So when non-Muslims came to our community, we'd have designated people to sit them down. They'd come to a lot of Juma prayers, um, uh, attend classes or stuff like that. I'd have special classes just for converts, make them feel welcome, you know, and bring them chairs, get coffee, simple things they do for us, you know, not bring them, set them on the floor, make them make wudu like some of our brothers do. It's, it's really what we do to them is nothing they expect from us when we go there. And nor is it sound or valid in our Sharia. So um, it's a lot could be said, you know, I, I really thought, at one point to have seminars where we go to communities on how to improve your community, invite us, we'll share simple things like interfaith skills, um, da'wah, how to deal with new converts, what are the limits in Sharia, um, lots of things. Our communities, you know what it is, our communities need guidance. And the poor people in many communities, your board members are poor guys, they don't have religious training, they don't have the education, they're rich uncles often, who've lived, a, they feel they've been guilty all their life, made a lot of money, and now they want to do service. So instead of just donating and stepping back and giving the position to knowledgeable people, they take these leadership positions, and then they start dictating without knowledge what should be, shouldn't be, and then they cause chaos. The imam disagrees and says things are haram. They don't always agree with the imam. And it's, it's like we need community training. We need to have people how to function and, and really like an actual study, like studies show, this is how, here are the principles, how you can improve in your community. Here's skills we found across, you know, 150 communities we studied. Here's valuable assets. You know, why couldn't we do that and make our community so much better? Many communities would be like, oh my God, I never thought of that. Oh, you have a template? Oh, great. Okay, we can call you. And on and on and on, the amount of, how we can really better ourselves by consultation in a good way and sharing those with each other, I think we can improve our communities by great measures, inshallah. I wish we can do this. That would be a great endeavor. Thank you so much for that beautiful uh, advice and insight. And it's, it's really so nuanced. Um, the way that you talked about it was really beautiful. I just have one last closing question. And it's about something you actually said in the beginning you talked about this point where you had, you had met that, um, the rapper that had kind of left that world. Mm -hmm. and you were also kind of considering these two paths of ignoring everything you just said, or, you know, mm -hmm. really seeking Allah and, and leaving every, leaving this whole lifestyle behind. Um, what advice would you give to someone that's also kind of on those two paths and, and thinking about that transition? I think, Bismillah. To me, ultimately, this is about Allah choosing you. This is about Allah choosing you. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, yuhibbuhum wa yuhibbuna. Allah loves them and they love Allah. Radiyallahu anhum wa radu'an. Allah is well pleased with them and they're well pleased with Allah. If you look at all these verses, it's, it's always the idea that Allah is the one that 
loves you and you love Allah. Allah is the one who's pleased with you, you're pleased with Allah. And also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in another verse in the Quran where, um, actually uh, the story I want to share is from Rabi al-Adawiyah, the great early saint, uh, Allah bless and sanctify her blessed soul, who once was asked a question by somebody and the person asked, uh, Ya Sayyidah Rabia, uh, is, if I repent, will Allah forgive me? She said, no. But if Allah forgives you, you will repent. Mm. Now, so that's something when you hear, you're like, what's the difference? There is a difference. There is a difference. And that difference is that ultimately things come from Allah. So the first thing somebody should ask themselves is, they should have a concern. Does Allah love me? That's the question, right? Does Allah love me? Um, and do I love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? But understand this, so we don't want to be totally fatalistic here. There is an element to you, and that is your choices you make. Everyone has a choice, and that choice is your own will. It's your own free will Allah has allowed you to choose. But So there's layers of this, and the question you have to ask yourself is this. Am I truly happy? Because anyone who's considering Allah and to follow the religion correctly or live the life they are, you can live the life. And now it's more complex than it was, honestly, in the 90s. There's way too much. It's actually getting scary level. I really believe it's, it's got to a level now where it's getting super scary of all the distractions around us, the amount of bombardment we have from social media, from Instagram, from sound bites, from all these things that what are we doing in reality? You know, it's like, so I would say this to such a person, ask yourself, where does true happiness lie? Right? Where is your true happiness? Your true happiness will only be in submission to Allah. If you submit to Allah, you will find tranquility and peace. And Allah will give you better things than what you could have hoped for, right? If you don't, you are covering up something that's going to grow within you and eventually hurt you and haunt you. And possibly, I'm going to say possibly because the door to Toba will always be open to somebody even at the last breath that they have. But it will hurt you and you will never be happy. You will never truly be happy. I remember one young person once I asked, what changed your life? He said, an imam came to him, just looked at him and asked him something no one else had ever asked. Not even Sheikh Hamza. He was talking about how it wasn't Sheikh Hamza Yusuf that changed his life. It was another brother, uh, Imam Tamim in the Bay Area. Allah bless this brother, who said to him, he just looked at him and he said, are you truly happy inside? He said, no one asked me that question and I was not happy. And if you want true happiness, it's with Allah. And if you don't believe it, then go try it. You know, we're a community now. It was a beautiful analogy somebody gave us. We're just talking about all the great things on a restaurant menu, you know? Oh my God, that one sushi roll was the best ever. That one lamb dish with the thing was so amazing. Did you have it? Where'd you have? Oh, I didn't taste it. It's like, what? What are you recommending you didn't taste? I can tell you these experiences I shared, we were there. The taste and the feeling and the the experiences we had are always going to leave a lifelong impression on me and everyone that ever attended those classes with these wonderful teachers. But, but, you know, it's not the experience of somebody today. Today, someone must make their own experiences. They must make their own life story. They must find the things within them that brings them to Allah and expands their chest, their breasts, their love. 
And, and in order to do that, there is a critical element everyone needs. You need a guide. Not necessarily some Sufi guide, Sheikh, but you need someone in the path, this beautiful religion, that is above you and can mentor you and can help you and guide you and answer your questions. And that when you're with them, you feel the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you don't have that, it's going to be very difficult to get there. So if you're contemplating guidance, if you have that choice, I had a teacher. I looked at the face of someone who'd been there, done that, has a, a piece within him that I'm looking directly in front of me two feet away. I had a model. If I read that in a book, I don't think I could have done that. I saw within this person a goal that I could be and I could achieve. And that's what really aided my decision. You know, and the decision was ultimately facilitated by Allah. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your time. And your really beautiful and emotional story. May Allah bless you as well. And inshallah, um, expand all the khair that you'd bring for everybody, inshallah. And may Allah accept this as something that will be on our mizan al-hasanat, on our good deeds. May Allah rec- uh, you know, raise us with the Prophet Sallallahu May Allah rectify the ummah. May Allah guide us all to what is right. Forgive us of our sins. Um, thank you so much for having me on. I feel very honored, uh, not worthy to be on here, but Jazakum Allah Khair. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your story. Jazakum Allah Khair. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Oh. Uh...